Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. It's really, I, I learned a lot. I think in everything I've done, I've learned a lot. And if I knew everything that I knew before I jumped, I would have never taken the jump. Um, I think the thing that that has helped me in every decision I've ever made is um, ridiculous optimism and and naivety. Those are the inspiring words of Katerina Georgie. Katerina is the new CEO at FAIR. FAIR is the Foundation for Alcohol Research and Education and is an independent not-for-profit working to stop the harm caused by alcohol. I've known Katerina for many years and have always thought the work of FAIR is critical in taking on big alcohol and providing important research and advocacy on the harm alcohol abuse is causing in our community. It's a fascinating and troubling area that intersects with and compounds many social inequalities that exist in Australia. Our culture has been far slower for alcohol than for any other substance to provide effective regulation and public health campaigns. COVID-19 has also caused many Australians to drink more and often to harmful levels that have resulted in shocking outcomes like more family violence. I'll leave Katerina to pick up these important threads in our conversation. I will say that some of the key reasons I love working with Katerina invited her on the podcast are her infectious optimism and her belief in community-driven change. For those of you that don't know, Humans of Purpose is now 100% community-powered and advertising-free with our generous Patreon supporters enabling me to cover the majority of my monthly costs of production. So a quick shout out and thank you to our Patreon community of supporters, including Clyde, Susie, Carmen, Misha, Jules, Levi, Sue, Tanvir, Sally, McCartan, Stuart, Joel, Bonnie, Olivia, Lyndon, Joe, B, and Will. You can become a monthly Patreon supporter today for as little as the price of a single coffee, $4 per month. This support enables me to keep producing the show each and every week and to bring you top quality guests in the process. On sign up, I'll send you an exclusive Humans of Purpose tote bag valued at $25 and you'll help me shape the direction of the podcast moving forward. If you want some extra perks, check out our new Human Plus option, which includes bonus opportunities to go behind the scenes at Humans of Purpose, to be part of live episodes and to be connected with our incredible network of guests. To support us, just hit the link in our show notes or head to patreon.com slash humans of purpose. Finally, do you get the purpose? No, not literally. The purpose is our periodic email newsletter and has just been revamped with awesome new content and format. Sign up by Thursday to receive our latest edition. All you need to do is hit the link in our show notes and enter your email address to opt in. This podcast was recorded about two weeks ago over Zoom and I really enjoyed the conversation. I think you will too. So I am absolutely thrilled, as always, to be joined by Katerina Georgie. Katerina has been a longtime friend, uh, most importantly, and collaborator. And uh, first and foremost, also the CEO, the, the new CEO of FAIR. So Katerina, thank you so much for joining me, albeit via Zoom during a tricky COVID period. How are you going? I'm good. I'm doing really well. How are you doing through this time? Well, you know how I'm doing. We talk too much and I ramble on about myself today. We're going to make it squarely <laughs> about you and your journey. Um, and I love your journey, like sort of having been, I feel like a little blip on the on the roadmap or a sort of brief part of that during your time for purpose. And, um, you know, now being able to collaborate, we're, we're in the same sector, which is just awesome. When I saw the LinkedIn profile update, I got very yeah. excited to work with you in the AOD sector. 
Um, before we get into all of that, I'd love it if you could just take us through a bit about your journey into the space. Um, I want to know a bit about how you ended up in um, in FAIR and AOD, why you sort of went into the policy space, but just maybe how, how you kind of went about um, making your way and um, how you got to where you are a little bit today. Sure. Um, so I guess I've always had a keen interest in politics and policy and how you create change. Um, and it was never something that was, you know, hugely discussed in my household or anything like that. I always just saw some things that I thought needed to change and wanted to work out how you went about it. Um, and so when it came to me making decisions about what to do, I thought to myself, well, the place to create change is absolutely um through government and I'm going to go work for government now and it's going to be wonderful. Um, and for me, I learned a lot about myself when I was doing that and realised that it wasn't the place for me to make change because uh, I generally like to be in places where we can break things and build things. Um, and so then I, I found myself in the not-for-profit sector um, and it's a sector of incredible humans and they're like unicorns. There are these amazing people who do amazing things every day and I learn a lot about how you can create change to policy, uh, how you can do advocacy, how you can do community development, how you, learning about strategy and governance. And I was just really interested in all of those things. And it gave me the chance to work on something that I was super passionate about, which was uh, health and, and working on um, preventing ill health. I was always particularly interested in that. I think it comes from my mum making me check in on older people on our street when I was a kid um, and just looking at the different ways that we can do that across the country and the ways the not-for-profit sector does that has, has kept me engaged for many, many years. It's a really succinct summary and I, I love some of the pragmatism in, in what you said, sort of like it's all about creating social change and it sounds to me like I'm kind of living this parallel life to you where it is the logical place to go is government's where all the change happens. Let's go to government. And then you you kind of find yourself there and then um, maybe you think this is a hard, the harder place than I imagined to actually be part of making change. So maybe let's go back out to the sector. Is that kind of um, something you can relate to? Yeah. And I, I should say even before that, I thought that the place for me to create change was through um, research and academia. And, and I thought I was going to go down that path. Um, and there are amazing people who create change in research and who create change in government. Um, and I'm so lucky to work with so many of them. Uh, but for me, there's just something about the the closeness to the community of working in the not-for-profit sector. Um the incredible humans that you meet and the ability to, you know, build things that can't be built or developed anywhere else uh, and the fact that you see the change happening before you. I think all of those things really appeal to me and they motivate me to, to keep working. Um, and I know that different things drive different people, but that ability to, to see that change and to speak to people and to, to understand where the communities are that that you're trying to engage with. Um, I think that that's really important. And I don't I don't know if, I'm sure other people get it from other places, but I certainly get it from the not-for-profit sector in this space. Yes, yeah, it sounds to me like grassroots change is very important to you, listening to people, connecting with people. And um, I always find the the kind of 
the breakdown in thought interesting here around how you always think that that's what government does, that they're supposed to consult and do and, um, and, and they do very well. But I'm always drawn to Obama's um, aphorism when he talks about um, changing policies like changing a big uh, steamboat, like it turns really slowly. Um, and so maybe, you know, being an activist in the kind of advocacy, not-for-profit space um, and having that rich voice uh, directly with the community, that deep connection, you're much more like a speedboat or a much more kind of, um, uh, I'm trying to think, I'm not a, a sea person, so it's probably lost on me a little bit, but, you know, a much more agile turning circle kind of device that gets far closer to the community and the issues. I think you learn a bit about yourself in the different jobs that you do. Um, and so I, I thought because I have a keen interest in politics that um, politics and policy and government uh, was the, the main way to create change. Um, but, you know, there are so many different actors that are part of that change process. There's members of the community, there's not-for-profit organisations, there's researchers, there's government, uh, there's, there's business. And so there are lots of different ways to be part of it. Uh, and learning about that as I went along and seeing the different actors um, landed me squarely here and I can't see myself being anywhere else. And you found yourself a very nice spot sort of nestled between creating change uh, through influence, policy, uh, research and education, uh, but also through, you know, being a really dynamic, um, you know, grassroots organisation too. I will come back in a second to um, talk about full purpose, but I want to know before that, um, tell, me, tell us a little bit about FAIR and introduce FAIR maybe to people who haven't heard of FAIR before and uh, a bit about your history there and uh, what they're doing in the community. Sure. So FAIR is the foundation for alcohol research and education. Uh, and we exist to create healthy and safe communities that are free from alcohol-fueled harms. And the way that the organisation does this is it works with community, it works with researchers, it works with health professionals uh, and others to develop policies or solutions to prevent alcohol-fueled harms. Uh, it supports research and undertakes research it also does health education and health promotion uh, and engages in the conversation about alcohol and reducing alcohol-fueled harms through media and communications. Um, and as you alluded to, Mike, I joined FAIR 10 years ago uh, and worked there for some time and I've now recently come back just three months ago in the role of, of CEO. Happy um, anniversary, I think. <laughs> I don't know if decade return, like it's a marked date, but uh, welcome home, I guess I could say, on behalf of those who enjoyed your early work. Well, that's sort of, I think initially our first interaction was actually when you were at FAIR, and I thought this is an interesting organisation because um, – they're small, um, but huge shadow and uh, really influential in that public space where I think a lot of the, um, the change happens. So, you know, may, maybe um, speak a little bit about kind of what it's like to work in an organisation that um, might look small but casts a mighty shadow and is able to really um, move things along. Well, I think that to understand what FAIR does, you have to have a think about um, the role of alcohol in uh, Australia and more broadly. And I know that that's huge. Um, but, you know, we live in a country where we get messages all the time that you drink if you're happy, you drink if you're sad, you drink if you've had a bad day, you drink if you've had a good day, you drink to cope with anxiety or stress. Um, and that contributes to this, what people sometimes refer to a culture of drinking, 
where there's huge amounts of harm and the harm um, transpires in so many different ways. There are some people who uh, struggle with alcohol from day to day. There are some people who are impacted by alcohol-fueled violence. Um, there are some people who have chronic disease um, from long periods of drinking um, and it you often don't meet, you often meet people, everyone has a story of, of a way that alcohol is impacted on them in their life. Uh, so when we look at how we prevent these harms um, from alcohol, then we're looking at systems and structures because these things don't just happen. People don't just wake up one day and go, I think I'll, I'll uh, get become alcohol dependent today. There are a whole bunch of things in the environment and the community that push people towards these ways there's this strong and powerful um, alcohol industry with big companies who are marketing pretty aggressively and know more about people than they ever have because of artificial intelligence and the data that they can collect online. Um, and all of these things are driving this culture of harm. So we look at systems and structures and, and policy settings and we, we make recommendations based upon evidence and conversations we have with people in the community about everything from prevention through to supports. Um, and that's a key part of what we do because without organisations like FAIR who are tapped into the community and engaging on this, then there isn't that voice in these policy discussions. Yeah. And so it's interesting because I think probably a lot of people wouldn't even think or maybe know about the great work that FAIR does because they're, they're just very like uh, tied into maybe the, the laissez-faire policy settings and culture that is just enjoy yourself within limits, be responsible, blah, blah, blah. We've all heard the usual um, thing. But um, the, the damage that alcohol is doing in the community is, as we both know, really significant. Um, it's destroying families. There's the intersectional element where you've got the overlap with gambling issues, um, another big industry group there that's doing harm. Um, you've got family violence and, and you've got the mental health overlap, I think is an obvious one too. Ooh, yeah. So it's super important to have, I think, a group like FAIR out there who's doing the research, doing the advocacy, and maybe people who haven't been in both government and outside um, aren't kind of as aware about the soft power um, and the influence of soft power in creating change in a, in a really complex system. But I think, yeah. you know, that, that's very much the, the space that you operate in is in kind of changing minds, changing hearts and minds, and then starting to, you know, make that really like a maybe speed up that slow, big, cumbersome ship at turning around a bit more? I've, I'm very passionate um, about advocacy and I'm very, very passionate about um, people having a voice in decisions that, that are being made by, by governance, governments. And I take for granted, I think, the fact that, um, you know, I've been exposed to what happens in Canberra and in parliaments and, and seeing how decisions are made. And, and when you see that, you see lots of powerful interest groups and corporations who are influencing policy. Um, but what you don't often see is lots of people working along in not-for-profit organisations, trying to understand what's happening on the ground, trying to understand what's happening with communities, um, what's happening with disadvantage um, across the country and then trying to also influence that process. 
And I think that this is a critical role of the not-for-profit sector that isn't spoken about enough. But without these organisations and organisations like FAIR, the only voices that would be involved in policymaking would be these corporations who Mm. can afford to have lobbyists walk the corridors in Canberra. And so I think this is a critical role and it's often not the one that we see when we talk about charities, but it's such an important role to shaping the systems that create, you know, equality uh, and better outcomes for people. Yeah, really well said. Um, I have nothing to add that was so well said, in fact. So uh, <laughs> you really nailed that. Um, but maybe I do still want to duck back a little bit because you, you had a nice um, hiatus period there um, from FAIR where you, where you started a brilliant organisation for purpose, which was sort of takes me back to your kind of passion about um, building not-for-profit capacity and building the the sector's capacity. And for me, and I'll get you to speak to it in your own words, but it seemed very much like that was part of your effort to sort of build that capacity and help not-for-profits to understand that they have a voice and they need to use it if they're going to get change. Yeah, absolutely. So I um, I also in this time was, was very lucky um, to have a baby who is now almost five, which is just craziness. Um, but the reason why that's super important uh, is because I learned a lot through that. Um, I was working at fair, you know, 70 or 80 hour weeks. You're on a plane every week. There's lots of that sort of thing going on. Uh, and when I had my baby, everything stopped uh, and people want to give you space. So the phone stops ringing. You go from this super chaotic life to, for me, everything sort of stopping. And it gave me an opportunity to, to stop and reflect on what it is uh, that I wanted to do uh, and how I wanted my life to look. Uh, and it was an enforced stop because otherwise I think you do just keep working and moving Um, And so in that time, um, I had the opportunity to create for purpose Um, and I got this uh, a grant, a micro grant from an organisation called YMCA Canberra Uh, and they believed in this idea and the idea was that we've got these amazing advocates in the not-for-profit sector um, but we need to build that advocacy capacity and there's not a lot of that going on or there wasn't a lot of that going on at the time. Uh, And so it started by delivering one workshop in Canberra. And this happened when I was still working at FAIR, actually, um, because I would do it on the side. And the workshop was on policy and advocacy and it it sold out and people were flying in to come to it. And we just then from there built a a community so people can also join a a community. Um, We did strategy work with organisations and it just built so quickly that I had to make a choice and I, I made the choice to take the leap um, and do something I'd never done before, which was to start this social business. Um, And, yeah, it's called For Purpose and it continues uh, with an amazing team now. And in the the time I was at at For Purpose, the the five years, you know, we we trained a 1,000 people um, and and now have this growing community. And it's, it's great to see it because sometimes when you're working to create change, it can feel really isolating. Mm. And so it's nice to be able to share your experience and share your knowledge and connect with people who share similar values. And um, you had a profound impact in that organization. I think it played a really valuable social function. Uh, It hit maturity, a really good phase of growth. How does one, um, having brought that to life, step away from it? (laughs) <laughs> um it's really I I learned 
a lot. I think in everything I've done, I've learned a lot. And if I knew everything that I knew before I jumped, I would have never taken the jump. Um, I think the thing that that has helped me in every decision I've ever made is um, ridiculous optimism and and naivety. And I ridiculous think that's optimism. That's everybody. that's definitely a quote that we're going to pop in this episode. Yeah. <laughs> um, I just genuinely think, oh, we could give that a go. Why not? Like it, it makes sense. Let's give it a shot. Um, and so with, with jumping to full purpose and, and doing that, I just thought, let's give this a go. Let's take a shot. And then when the opportunity arose at fair, I remembered hearing about it and going, oh no, I've got, I've got full purpose and I'll keep doing this. Um, but to be completely honest, and I don't know how this sounds, but the, the pullback for me was just too great. Like I, I, found a point where and it's when you when I'm making these sorts of decisions because they're decisions that impact not only on my life but my partner's life and um, our child's life we had the conversation uh, and I couldn't say no and it's because it's a cause that I'm so passionate about um, and an opportunity to create change in something that can make such a profound difference to people's lives I just came to this situation where I was like well I have to give that a shot and sometimes it's interesting you, you can go from like capacity building and building something that helps a whole i guess like the fisherman and the rod kind of um thing where you're giving a rod to so many organizations and helping them be better and stronger but then sometimes you think oh maybe i've got a bit broader and i need to go narrow now because with um fair you know you get to focus in on a passion which is um education and advocacy around alcohol and um you know i know for me when i was in purposeful i thought oh look i'm helping lots of organizations but i'm not really sure i'm having a great impact on any of them and then you focus on one thing uh, and then, you know, you can maybe um, see far greater returns or see far greater kind of, um, I guess, unification of like purpose and, you know, you see things grow at a faster rate maybe. Was that your experience? I think um, you pointed out something, which is that we reconnected, Mike, because you created an organisation called Purposeful and I created an organisation <laughs> called Purpose and we, we were working together at that time as well. Um, I think it just points to the many different ways that people can create change. Uh, I loved being part of organisations' change journeys um, and being a piece of a puzzle that that people needed at particular times and connecting them in ways that they might not have uh, without full purpose. Um, But I certainly also really love being really across a particular issue um, and connecting with people who are super passionate about it and hearing people's stories. And, you know, most of the time I just feel really, really, really lucky that people trust me with their stories and, and the things they want to do. Um, and I, I didn't have that as much at All Purpose because you're working across so many things. Um, yeah. But now that in-depth capacity. So I think there are benefits to both of those things. And I think I'll just spend my time jumping around across different <laughs> things throughout my life probably. Strong thread of diplomacy and uh, political experience in that answer. Um, <laughs> but I'm, I'm sure everyone. I'm sure everyone's very happy that you're back at the fair doing um, tremendous work. What's What's it like? I mean, obviously you were the leader at um, For Purpose, your organisation, the CEO there. So you've been a CEO before. But what's it like um, your first CEO appointment um, to a bigger organisation? And is that something you ever saw on the cards for you in your career, or wanted to have as part of your career? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. And to be completely honest, it's really hard. Um, and I I don't, 
I maybe this is coming back to this naivety point earlier, um, but I, I started working at Fair um, a week before. It was mid March. So in my first week, we moved people to working from home because of what's happening with um, COVID-19 and the restrictions. Um, We saw some increased alcohol use during this time and were worried about the increased harm. Uh, The team had to get used to a a new CEO and also moved to working from home and I was really focused on their well-being and wanted to make sure that they were okay Um, There's obviously a very big organised alcohol lobby uh, who can be quite um, vocal and aggressive at times. Um, So having all of that happen at this particular time uh, felt like, you know, there's constant change every day and some days it was like, wow, this is why would I do this? I I loved my life before, I loved my job before. Um, But most days, especially those days when I have a conversation with people who've been impacted by alcohol uh, in their lives, I go, no, that's why we're here and that's why this is really important. Um, and so it's 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 hard because I feel really responsible for the well-being of, of our team during this really tricky time and making sure they're okay and checking in at a time when I can't physically mm. see them or reach out to them. Um, and it's it's hard because you have to be involved in these conversations that are happening at the public level around what's going on with alcohol during this time and try and prevent this on sort of harm that you can see that's that's coming towards you and that's happening. And so I feel this immense responsibility to people who are being impacted, to people who've had to deal with alcohol-fueled harms in their homes and their families for many years, and that's been amplified during this time to try and help them as well. So I've also had to try and figure out in my um, own mind and in myself, because you can work for as many hours in the day uh, as there are available how I reconcile that, how I make sure we're trying to do what we can to create change but don't put too much pressure on myself and everybody to create that change too quickly. Yeah, it's a really good point. I think it's a very fine balance and obviously like something that you said a bit earlier really resonated with me um, in a separate offline conversation. You were talking a bit about how you're meeting some of your colleagues for the first time um, over Zoom and and like during yeah. in the onset of COVID and that must, must be like they say there's no perfect time to start a new job but that definitely is not a great time to start a new CEO role, eh? <laughs> Challenges. <laughs> I, I feel like I've been lucky in this um, because this has been the norm for me with this organisation, but I really do feel that for the team who's been mm. trying to sense this, you know, what's the shift in direction for the org? What's um, this person want? What sort of conversations do we need to have? How do I deliver on those things when, you know, I'm only exposed to it with a, from a Zoom call every now and then? Um, and so I, think also, I, I feel like- more for them. And I think also, you know, your strength is very much in communication. And like I I think there's a lot you can achieve through just being in a room with people and a lot of that kind of nonverbal stuff. Um, there's the sort of seeing the, yeah. the body language, seeing whether people are on the same page. Do you have alignment? Are you not in alignment? And I think that must make it hard starting out because, you know, you can't really, you know, Zoom call, you can't really tell whether people agree with you because they're all kind of doing this awkward smile that's kind of saying, oh, this is great, you know, like everything's going so well, but, you know, what do you really think? (laughs) (laughs) Even the simplest things, Mike, like, um, (laughs) like, you know, if I was in the office and had to sign a contract or something, you do it in two seconds, but you have to allocate this time, get information on it, briefed on it, make sure you're checking in with people. And, but saying that out loud, you know, this is, this isn't, 
this is a problem of privilege, right? I'm, I'm very lucky to be yes. in this role and I'm, I'm very lucky to be where I am at this time and have a job. Um, and I know there are lots of people who are going through a really tough time. And I do think about those things all the time. Like most of all, I'm grateful and I'm in this incredible love bubble with my family here in this house where yeah. we get to see each other every day. We should so probably just clarify that, that you're generally uh, very optimistic and happy about everything. I'm just reflecting <laughs> on what I think as a kind of obsessive <laughs> nitpicky person about your experience, which is really like probably quite inappropriate but because <laughs> we're mates. No, I feel like I can do that. <laughs> no, it's totally fine. I, um, I try, I've thought about the things during this time that have been really wonderful. And one of those is being at home every day and, and seeing um, my family every day and not being pulled, you know, physically in many different directions and being in many different states. And um, so I guess I've been reflecting on that as well during this time. Yeah, super interesting. Um, just about COVID and the onset, I mean, do you kind of, having been in the alcohol and um, drug space for so long, do you kind of have a sense um, before things happen about how they might go? Like I know at us, for us at Task Force, we were thinking a lot about, um, you know, COVID's going to be terrible for drug and alcohol because people are going to hole up at home. They won't have access to um, healthcare or professional help and we'll just be binging. And um, some of that has proven to be true. Uh, we've also had positive experiences where people are more engaged via Zoom who were previously not really attending counselling. So not via Zoom, like, you know, telehealth or whatever we're using. Um, but, uh, do, yeah, so for you, did you kind of sort of see this as something that would be really big for FAIR and the role to play in that? Yeah, I, there were indications. So once the restrictions were introduced uh, in one of the last weeks of March, there was a huge increase in um, sales of alcohol from takeaway or packaged liquor. So what a lot of people don't know is across Australia, 80% of our alcohol normal time is bought from off what we call off-licence or packaged liquor, which is bottle shops. And um, so any sort of increase, and in one week, you know, some Commonwealth Bank data was saying that the increase was 86%, but means that what's happening in the homes is amplified significantly. Uh, and that happened coming into Easter. And I remembered feeling sick to my stomach, thinking about, you know, holidays are a terrible time for people who have someone in their family who has an alcohol problem. Mm. And then you amplify that with the, the concerns around job losses, um, around economic stress, around uh, coping and anxiety, all of those things, uh, and just being confined to your home and think about the sorts of harms that would be happening in those mm. homes where things were pretty terrible beforehand. And, yeah, I, I, I could not not work that weekend because I just felt like we have to be doing all we can. Like what can we be doing to try and prevent this um, further? Or what should we be saying? How can we be getting messages out there? Um, so you're you're right in that it's it's not a simple it's not a simple thing that's happened. So because people drink in different ways, you know, some people don't drink at all. Some people are more likely to drink daily. Some people um, uh, drink at risky levels on a Friday or Saturday night at a pub club or bar. Then the the changes are going to be different depending on where people were at before. Um, and so we saw from some data recently from the ABS that one in 10 people's drinking has gone down and one in seven people's drinking has gone up. Uh, we've seen some indications that there's been increased involvement of alcohol and family violence, which is terrible because alcohol increases the severity and frequency of, of family violence. 
Uh, we've seen more people reaching out for alcohol and other drug support and some people not engage as much as well. Um, so there's lots of, of different ways that alcohol can cause harm. And the thing I'm worried about now is for people who've moved towards daily drinking, um, that's their harder habits to, to snap out of later or to undo later once you return to whatever our new normal looks like. Yeah, um, I, I think, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and sorry, I think, no, that's right. I, I think it's super interesting how um, you might have expected to see, like the, the layperson might have expected to see a uniform rise in drinking just across the board, but it's a lot more nuanced than that when you look at the data. And I think it's it's pain felt unequally is how I'd describe it. You know, you see some of the um, the the higher um, socioeconomic um, groupings and suburbs are drinking a lot more. Uh, maybe they were sort of drinking casually and they've started to really purchase a lot more alcohol. And then, you know, you see sometimes um, people who you think already have the most problems with alcohol are not drinking as much or consuming or purchasing as much as you might expect. So, I mean, it, it, it's a very complex landscape. And I just think um, COVID is such an incubator for kind of um, a few things. You've got the maybe the loss of purpose or loss of sense of purpose around education and um, jobs. You've got loss of control, so you're stuck in your house with only your, only your loved ones, and maybe you know not you can't do much else. And there's a loss of agency as well, and the ability to kind of you know have a self deterministic lens on what you might do next. That's um, really when you think about it, you can just imagine a lot of people you know saying, "Oh well, um, I think I'll have a drink." One, you know, <laughs> there's sort of nothing else to do right now but uh, numb the pain a bit. Yeah, it's. There are some things that are coming out and things that we're learning as more data becomes available. And one of them is that um, women, uh, so what we saw from the ABS data was that women were twice as likely to be drinking more than men. Um, and these sorts of times or, or COVID in general has impacted on women more greatly uh, because women are more likely to be in the casual workforce and be affected in that way. Um, so they're more likely to be financially impacted. They're more likely to be doing a lot of the caring and a lot of the homeschooling, which creates additional stress on top of their uh, work as well. And so when we see that their um, alcohol use has gone up as well, that's really, really concerning. But the thing we have to point to as well, and I think sometimes the thing that we don't talk about is there is an alcohol industry um, and there are alcohol companies that are profiting significantly off this time and marketing in a way to target people during this time. Mm. Uh, and so we've seen ads that have popped up towards women particularly, which are suggesting that the way that you cope is to have a drink or the way that you deal with a hard day of homeschooling is to have a drink. And I think that sort of predatory behaviour from yep. these alcohol companies is something that's really problematic. And mm. the question we should be asking is, you know, what is the responsibility on them at this time to be doing all they can to be reducing the harm from their products when Coles and Woolworths or Woolworths controls almost half of the packaged liquor market and together they control 70 to 75% of the market, you know, if they made changes, then we could be reducing some of these harms, um, but they're just making huge profits from this time. And it's it's a real concern 
because there are people who are pushing alcohol in a way that's really harmful. Yeah. Before I started working in the drug and alcohol sector, I really had no idea about how harmful alcohol was as kind of like this, um, not just a lifestyle thing, but a gateway to heavier substance abuse and a whole lot of social um, issues. Just because of how I was brought up, I think we were always pretty um, casual about having a drink and um, you might relate, you know, sort of like, you know, you've got um, ethnic family and, you know, you want to have a glass of wine, you're going to have a glass of wine as a family. That's a nice thing. Um, and I just think, you know, being in the space now and seeing how, how the, in the public sphere, these companies behave and the marketing campaigns and the communications and how that kind of uh, rolls into gambling, um, campaigns and sport, uh, it's deeply disturbing. I have a number of sports that I really love watching that I hope will come back soon. Some of which are already back, but I cannot stand how it's just become about, um, pushing the consumer of the sport to be a consumer of gambling products and a drinker. Uh, why can't I just in- yeah. enjoy, enjoy my sport as a lover of the sport? Yeah, absolutely. It's everywhere. And I think often people think that controls are in place that aren't. Um, so I often people go, well, how is that allowed? Like you shouldn't be able to say the way you cope to get through COVID is to have a drink. Um, but with, you know, with advertising, alcohol advertising or promotion in, in Australia, it's it's a industry-led scheme. They regulate themselves and we can see how that's going uh, pretty terribly, really. Yeah. Uh, and when it comes to things like sport, we, we have this thing where there's this loophole which allows um, advertising during sports time. So we make these exceptions to, to push these products during this time when we know there are lots of kids watching uh, and, you know, being from the country, I want to, I want my family, my kids to love sport. I mm. love sport. Mm. Um, but there are all of those things going on as well. Uh, and I, I think the interesting thing, just thinking about this in the context of COVID is during COVID, we've made a decision to prioritise health uh, and to put health at the forefront. Um, and I don't think we've done that. We certainly haven't done that in that way before because we haven't had a crisis of this magnitude. Um, but moving forward, if we could have the balance more towards looking at people's health and health outcomes and people's well-being, uh, then, you know, together we can achieve far greater outcomes. Yeah, that's a good one. I mean, and I'm curious how you get that because the things that I've observed um, are that there's a lot more people who are cooped up in their house who then you see outside running very awkwardly. And my wife and I play this game where we try and guess runner pre-COVID or runner post-COVID. Like, you know, <laughs> is this somebody who's uh, injuring themselves because now they run because they can't go to gym and that's, you know, its whole own thing. But it is great to see people out there or has been to see people out there running and enjoying parts and you know being more active with walking um but i guess what you're trying to say as well is that maybe we haven't seen enough emphasis on um personal responsibility for health and well-being and how the messaging around that is i actually would say we haven't had enough focus on corporate responsibility like the Uh, balance is usually how do we it's usually um economy benefit like how do we fix the economy and we can only ever fix the economy and therefore we need to support business at all costs rather than how do we have a look at people's health outcomes and how do we focus on that. So during COVID we had to put that at the forefront and already the narrative's completely shifted to how do we get jobs, how do we, but we have to keep remembering that we need, there needs to be a balance. We need to be thinking about people's well-being throughout this. Decisions that we're making now will impact on people well into the future 
And with alcohol, if we're going into times of recession, which we are, or economic uncertainty, and there are further job losses when things like um, government supports are lifted, um, then we need to be making sure that we're looking after people now but into the future and governments absolutely have a responsibility to do that and that includes placing high standards on companies that are selling products that cause harm. But does it sort of interest you that you see for the first time a big government's been on a public health campaign probably since life be in it in the 80s uh, where you've got uh, lots of messaging around how to be safe, you've got the deputy CMO coming on and telling us about the three steps to, to COVID safety, but no one is kind of where is the government on uh, responsible drinking and responsible kind of substance use and behaviours and and um, a whole range of other kind of things that are really like part of that um, part of what's going to be the legacy or aftermath of COVID, which is really troubling. <clears throat> yeah, look, the, the federal government has uh, put some support behind some um, messaging around reducing risky drinking and that's rolling out now and that's really important. Um, and they've also put some support, as have some other states and territories, uh, sorry, some states and territory governments to alcohol and other drug services. Um, so they've certainly acknowledged that we're going to see these secondary health impacts like mental health and um, alcohol and other drug use uh, and family violence where we're going to be needing to have increased supports if we're going to prevent those harms. I guess We just my- really need to make sure, because we keep talking about this snapback, yep. um, that the snapback doesn't include just completely forgetting about people's well-being. Oh, 100%. People, yeah. 100%. People's I, well-being I- goes beyond having a job. Yeah. Um, having a job is important. Uh, being well is important as well. And, and we can have a balance. This isn't an either or scenario. Well, I think it's what you call like a bi-directional relationship where having a job makes you feel good and um, feeling good helps you to get a job. So it's kind of like there is that, there's a bit going on between them. Um, but uh, certainly um, there seems to be this, this this kind of learned response from government, and I suppose that that's what I take issue with. That if we think something's going to be a problem, we'll just fund a couple of organisations, a couple of the bigger ones. We'll, we'll make big announcements that we'll give them a few million dollars, and that'll solve everything. Uh, I, I guess I'd like to see a bit more of public um, coming together, or you know, group work or group think about solving the problem at more of a grassroots level. Then we'll just give. Um, We'll give, you know, $100 million to uh, Black Dog Institute and that'll solve the mental health issue that's coming with COVID. Yeah, it's so tricky because these are, firstly, there are lots of organisations who are doing amazing things Mm. uh, and these are things that have to be rolled out really quickly as well. Mm. Um, But I think that the the thing we need to do is we absolutely, these are problems that existed before COVID. So mental health was something we never got on top of. AOD is something we've never got on top of. Family violence is something we're not doing enough about. And so during COVID, they've just been under the microscope and amplified in a way that we never thought would happen. And so now coming out of it, we need to be saying, okay, well, how do we actually keep focusing on preventing these things and supporting people? And it's not an either-or scenario. It's not economy versus health. Mm. We can be looking at how we can improve all of these things if we just you know put our mind to it and really focus on this because if we just debate in that way then people are going to lose and particularly people who are experiencing the most disadvantage who were struggling well before COVID came into play. 
It's well said. Um, I, I don't like using the term silver lining, but I have heard a lot of these groups that are now receiving funding and attention uh, from governments and otherwise because of COVID, like as you say, they've, they've been around for a long time. Um, that's maybe something positive that's come out of COVID or is a silver lining. How do you kind of think about that? Is that, is that a, a morally um, fraught space for you? or are you, Can you accept that there are things that are now good because of COVID, like that we are paying appropriate attention? Because uh, I imagine, you know, you're a glass, glass half full person. So as an optimist, you'd say, yes, that is great that that's happening. Uh, as a pessimist, you might think, oh, well, it's pretty horrible that we weren't giving that appropriate attention before. And maybe it's a bit shocking that we need to have a global pandemic to actually respond to some serious um, local issues. I think it's all of the things, Mike. Um, you don't ask simple questions, do you? <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> I think... Um, so I think there are a few different layers to that. So there are lots of people who are experiencing very significant disadvantage and were well before this and they're going to be disproportionately impacted by this. And they are the people that I worry about the most and they're the people we weren't doing enough for before and we're not doing enough for now and we need to be doing more for moving forward. Um, there are people like uh, me who've been very lucky through this and who have seen as an opportunity to go for an extra run or be close to their family or those sorts of things, um, and and that's great. But there are also other, you know, huge things going on around the world um, that we're seeing, you know, at, at the moment and injustices and, and more people rising up and more people speaking. Um, so... I don't know if this answers your question, but I think the thing to be conscious of is that we can all play an active role in making things better mm -hmm. and we need to be listening and we need to be uh, looking uh, and we need to be contributing in whatever way we can. If we can donate to causes that are helping to address these injustices, we should be. Yep. If we can volunteer, we should be. Um, there are lots of different ways that people can engage. But the important thing is that if this has drawn your attention to something that you didn't realise existed before, then don't forget once it's over. You've nailed it. Um, I did ask a very tricky question and um, we're not in the business at Humans of Purpose of uh, letting people get away with flippant answers. So uh, well done and a great response there. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I want to know a little bit about, um, obviously, you're doing a lot around COVID at FAIR and you're doing a lot of research. I've seen you all over the, the key publications, you've been pro bono, um, you've got some of your own great evidence and research coming out. What is on the agenda for you? And I mean, COVID aside as well, when you come in as a new CEO um, with your own ideas and thoughts, what are the first few things that you're kind of focusing on as key priorities and maybe campaigns that you want to touch on? Yeah, sure. So, um the thing that's super important at the moment and thing I haven't mentioned uh, yet is that um, there are harms that result from alcohol consumption during pregnancy and one of these things, one of these is um, a condition called fetal alcohol spectrum disorders. Uh, and at the moment, the government is considering uh, putting a, a health warning on alcohol products around um, alcohol consumption during pregnancy. Um, and there is a very strong, big alcohol industry lobby uh, that's fighting against having this label. Um, and so that's one of the things that, that FAIR is working on alongside lots of other organisations because, you know, we need to be communicating and being real and honest and having honest labelling about what these products do and the harms that they can cause 
And this is a really simple thing that governments can do. So we're working on that at the moment. Uh, it's really important. Another thing at the moment uh, that we've seen is online delivery is increasing and that happens with alcohol as well. There's lots of online retailers, lots of operators who are pushing lots of alcohol into houses and it's a largely unregulated or self-regulated space. So there isn't even a requirement to verify ID. Um, you can order a couple of, you know, sorry, businesses can push a couple of bottles of vodka into your home at 10.30 at night. Um, I just think these sorts of things require higher standards and some common sense measures to make sure that we're keeping people safe. Um, for me, a big focus moving forward and a big focus with FAIR is to really, really have a look at, I was going to say focus again, but that would have been three times in one <laughs> sentence. <laughs> no one's counting except you, Katarina. <laughs> <laughs> really, really looking at the largely invisible harm from alcohol. You know, where, where people are consuming 75% of alcohol in homes and that creates harm for children, for families, uh, creates harm in, in alcohol-fueled violence. And we need to be preventing that and doing all we can to prevent that. And that's going to be a huge focus for FAIR and it's a huge focus and passion area for me because the way that alcohol is used in a home impacts on someone in this generation and the next generation and the next generation. So if we can be preventing any harms um, or misuse early, then we can be preventing those intergenerational impacts uh, for years to come. It's a very exciting and uh, busy agenda. Someone like you who's meticulous but also a really good listener, um, I kind of imagine you stepping into the fair role and um, maybe having a 100-day plan but maybe also not at all and just listening and trying to figure out as you go what to do. What's that process like coming into an organisation and maybe just uh, talk a bit about the push and pull factors or the, um, the wide open ears versus the here's my heart and mind and here's our plan, go, go, go. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there are there are internal changes that have to be introduced. There are strategic changes. Um, there are different deadlines that you need to meet because they exist uh, and different things you need to do to, to run an organisation, like consider budgets and governance and good strategy. Um, but a lot of that is also thrown out the window when you step in the door and COVID hits and that means that everything changes. And so you have to be reactive and... Um, so I, I, we need to be as planned and considered as we can be. Um, but most of it's checking to see how people are doing um, and shifting things and, and shifting strategy, um, but also making sure people are okay and learning, like learning every day. It won't be surprising to you, um, Mike, as, as I was someone who started an organisation that was focused on learning. Mm. Uh, and so I think it's really important and I think I need to, to set a culture of learning. And I've made more mistakes, uh, I think, than, than landed things. Um, but through each of those mistakes, I, I just try and, and learn and do better with the next thing. Um, not going to say it's, it's not a hard job because all these jobs are, are tough, um, but it's important. And I, the question I ask myself, every day and I make sure I do this is for the people whose lives are negatively impacted by alcohol is what we did today a step towards making a difference uh, nice. and that's what I need to keep doing every day um, because otherwise it's really easy to be busy 
but to not be contributing to change or the outcomes that you need to, to make the difference uh, in, in people's lives. So it's safe to say you're strong on holding to purpose, which I think is very important. You have uh, what I did want to kind of, before we wrap up, is just ask you about your own habits and routines and, you know, um, for myself, I'm reading some classic books, which I'm enjoying. I'm one of those people who was not a runner before who is trying to look like a runner on the street so, and, do, you know, getting hamstring strains way too often. So these are some of the things keeping me a bit sane. I'm wondering how you're kind of looking after yourself and um, whether there's things that you've taken on um, or just anything, habits, routines, um, hobbies that have helped you during this period. Yeah, I've gone through periods of having terrible habits. So I went through... Um, a couple of years ago, I realised that the way that I would get through a day is usually with a family block of chocolate and a few coffees. Oh, that's this guy. Dinner. We are the same person <laughs> in different states. <laughs> <We're> <laughs> telling you, <laughs> honestly. Um, and then I had this time where there were some uh, health scares around me and my family and I just went, we, you I need to do better at that. Um, so I am I am now a runner and I love running. I love running because it's just you and you just pace it out and you think and it gives you time to, to plan or just zone out. So I, I do as much of that as I can. Um, and I've, <laughs> I have a Fitbit which judges me a lot when I don't. <laughs> Who doesn't? <laughs> um, I try to carve out time in the day like that those that hour or two in the morning and at night when that I can spend with my um daughter to play or jump on the trampoline or just completely zone out because I think that that's important uh and be present drawing or or doing what we can but I need to say that I fail at that often (laughs) um and I I try to to eat as well as I can it has been harder during this time and especially uh starting a new role when your days can be you know very long I'm not even going to say how long but very long um but yeah just trying to keep remind my reminding myself and also when you're not having to get in your your um work clothes every day so you're not monitoring how you're doing (laughs) um but but running is huge for me and talking to family I think they they should just run a campaign government should run a campaign about substituting drinking for running that would be the, the, the biggest gains you'll ever see in a in a, a population health wise. It's just put down like because people the drinking thing you can become so obsessive about running that you, you'll probably do whatever you can to try and improve your performance. If you knew that alcohol was <laughs> you know stripping you back a bit, no, a, anyway, let's move on. That's a ridiculous idea. I don't know where that came from, but um, that's no. Great. Some people some people say to me that they uh, drink less because they want to be able to exercise the next day. Yeah. Um, and so that feeling of how you're going to feel tomorrow absolutely has an impact on on their decisions they're making. And yeah. did I think that you, you caught up with um, Chris Rain at Hello Sunday Morning recently and he, he's quite strong on that. And I know Chris has been on the podcast a long time ago, but uh, that's sort of key part of his messaging, isn't it? Like sort of how are you feeling? Like think about afterwards, what were the, the sort of the, um, the consequences rather than the act itself? Yeah, yeah. I think we... I. I forget about all of the different little Chris Rain is is amazing and he's fantastic um, and he's just stepped down from uh, the CEO of Hello Sunday Morning, um, which is so interesting. So it'll be great to see what Chris does next. I'm sure um, it'll be something like very intense and full on and amazing. Of course, of course. Um, but yeah, there's these really interesting in, and we could 
you know, you could fill a whole other two or three podcasts on the way that people talk about drinking or, you know, I found that uh, if you ask someone if they drink, they'll say, no, oh, not really. I'm not really a drinker. No, I'm not a drinker. Oh, I just have a few whiskeys a week. Or uh, it's just really interesting the way that we perceive drinking, um, the people who are drinkers perceiving their drinking in the light of other people's drinking and that what we perceive as a problem, which is often someone else's drinking but not mine. Um, so uh, so often it's just about um, also checking in and saying, is, is the drinking that I'm doing impacting on my life? That's what you can do as an individual, but... I do also need to keep coming back to there's there's corporate responsibility and corporate yep. social responsibility and we we need to hold these companies more accountable around that. I like that. I mean, none of us live in a vacuum. We live in a context and what's happening in that environment certainly shapes our behaviour and um, I think we're probably here bit too much about personal and individual responsibility, especially currently, but uh, certainly there's some environmental things that need to be um, fixed up. How can people connect with you and learn more about your awesome work at FAIR? Sure. Uh, people can check out our website, um, which is fair.org.au and FAIR is F-A-R-E. Um, or you can check it, check us out on Twitter or, or have a look at my handle on Twitter at Kat Georgie. Um, if people are interested in this uh, space or have been impacted by alcohol in any way, um, please also reach out to me uh, on my socials or or reach out to me at FAIR because I I really do genuinely mean that uh, the thing that, that d- drives our works is the story from people, the stories from people and the way that alcohol impacts on them and, and I feel very honoured and privileged to be hearing those stories. So please do reach out. I'm, I'm always up for a chat. Um, Mike will vouch for that. <laughs> Certainly and, true. <laughs> and keen to, to be learning more. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word of mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 